Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Jack Symes. He's the producer of the Panpsychist Philosophy Podcast, and he's also currently teacher and researcher of philosophy at the University of Liverpool in the UK. And he is the editor of a Bloomsbury series called Talking About Philosophy. The first book is Philosophers on Consciousness, Talking About the Mind. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So, Mr. Symes, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. And by the way, I'm a fan of the podcast. So, Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Ricardo. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me on with had this one planned for quite a while, haven't we? For for a few months, or maybe even a couple of years now, we've been trying to organise something. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I've been I've been trying to have you on the show at least since 2019. At least that's oh, wow. when I started following your podcast. So, great. Well, thank you for your kind words about the the podcast, and thank you for immediately marketing the book at the very start of the interview as well. You. You've had a chance to, to read through the book? Is, you, uh, I've read it all and I have to tell you that uh, probably most of the philosophers you interviewed, uh, I mean it was for the podcast but then you added mm. parts of the interview for the book, some of them I've already had on the show like Susan Blackmore, Patricia, Patricia Churchland, Massimo Pigliucci and others, so yeah, I guess we have some uh, background in common, I, I would say. <laughs> yeah, both being in public philosophy and both being interested in philosophy of mind, like you say, I have seen some of those those interviews you've done in the past with those thinkers. So hopefully there'll be there'll be lots for us to talk about today. Of course. And by the way, since we've started talking about your podcast, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, how and why did you start this podcast? Did you have any specific goals in mind for it? Yeah, like that's a really nice way and a good start. I think we started back in 2016. We can conceived of the idea back in 2015, so five or six years ago now. And it was myself, Andrew Horton, my co-host, and Oliver Marley, the, my other co-host at the time. And... We were all trained to teach at the University of Birmingham, those two had graduated perhaps a, a year before me. And what had happened in the UK is a new specification had been released to be taught across all schools. And it was a specification on religious studies, which is very much moral philosophy and philosophy of religion in the UK. So we thought there's a gap in the market for a podcast which the time and the thought goes into the structure, it has uh, that engaging, more light-hearted aspect to it, something that you'd you'd want to go and listen to rather than just a lecture or um, those. Uh, well, there's a lot of dry philosophy out there, as you found yourself by doing all of this. And we just wanted to add, we thought, adding a bit of personality to it. So the podcast is, I suppose, the best way to describe it and how we describe it now is offering accessible and engaging guides to the big questions and the big thinkers working on them. So it started off trying to support students and teachers of that new qualification in the UK, but we thought the topics would be interest to the public more generally. And as we found, as we moved towards the end of covering that specification, more and more members of the public were interested and there were lots of topics they wanted us to cover. And so we, you know, we, we haven't stopped really, and hopefully we're 
we're offering that uh, expertise for a <laughs> lack of a better term might be a little bit more self-congratulatory but uh, Andrew and Ali are certainly very very good teachers so what they do is they bring their pedagogical knowledge into public philosophy and make it engaging and accessible and and, and thanks to, to their hard work that the podcast continues to to bring that content. Mm-hmm. Yes, I also wanted to ask you a little bit more about that last point, because mm. uh, I'm also a podcaster. I don't have formal training in philosophy, for example. I have a background in science. But is it hard for you or do you find it hard sometimes to communicate uh, particularly when we're talking about complex ideas in philosophy mm. to lay people or make them accessible to lay people because that's something uh, when it comes to areas I'm more familiar with the jargon and with the technical terms and with the basics of them at least that sometimes I find it a little bit hard to Mm. expose information in a way that is appealing for a more general public. Do you also struggle with that or not? That's a really interesting question. I think personally, I don't find myself struggling with it too much these days because I'm very much used to teaching like undergraduates or high school students and having done the podcast for such a long time. The goal is always to my job is just to read the content and teach it to, to students or, or the general public and in those ways. So that's my only goal, really. I think what you're doing in particular and why it might be hard from an interviewer's perspective, and we find this on the podcast, is sometimes you've got a guest who wants to make sure their ideas are articulated in such a way that if they were scrutinized by another academic or in the form of an academic paper, they would stand up uh, to those criticisms. So we've had interviews, perhaps some good examples in philosophy of mind, like our interview with Hedda Hessel Merck on integrated information theory. That's a that's a complex and difficult idea. And she wanted to convey those in the way that she's used to. So that can be tricky for some of our audience members. And sometimes they are on that end of the differentiation spectrum that, that you have to have some kind of background. So we say, go back and listen to these episodes so you're ready for it. Or that interview with Michelle Montague, which is in the book as well, in Philosophers on Consciousness, we spent a long time trying to make sure that content was going to be accessible. So I remember basically a full day of me, Greg Miller and Ollie just sat around like, how can we even get these ideas, like communicate them to each other, let alone speak to her and make sure the audience are there. But with a lot of time and energy and a lot of planning, we managed to, I think, make those ideas accessible. So I think, yes, it's not too much of a challenge these days. The biggest challenge is trying to make sure your guest does that and that you don't spend the whole interview saying, oh, could you explain that concept again? You don't want it to be a list of definitions. Rather than saying parsimonious, just say simple right? and keep it as parsimonious as you can. Very well. So getting into the topic of this first book that Mm. I guess it will be a series, correct? There is also some other books planned, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the goal is to do 10 to start with. Now, the next one's Philosophers on God, talking about existence. And the one after that will be Philosophers on Living Well, talking about morality. So we're coming towards the end of putting together book number two. So that should be out 
um, towards the end of this year, 2022, or perhaps at the start of 23. Mm -hmm. Okay, so consciousness, uh, how would you define it? How would you define consciousness? Well, the, the obvious definition, the most widely cited definition amongst philosophers is Nagel's definition of there's something it's like to be that creature. If there's something it's like to be you, then, or, or be something in the world, be an agent, then you're conscious. So it's the, it's sound examples, it's the smell of coffee, it's the seeing of the color red, it's the headache after you've had too many drinks the night before and you wake up in the morning. Though those things are consciousness, they're experiences. So consciousness is experience. I think the when I explain that to people in day-to-day life, they still, it doesn't, help them anymore with a definition of consciousness uh, or it's what it's like to be you that's already such a, a loaded idea and a loaded phrase and i think sometimes we we fail to appreciate that if you haven't done and covered the topic before then you're not going to know what that means what it's like to be you so lately just using a, a, a basic example that most people can can engage with take your take your phone like your iphone for example your smartphone like when you speak into the microphone of your smartphone when you dance in front of your selfie camera, whatever the one on the front is, when you tap the screen, there's not something it's like to be that phone. All of that processing goes on in the dark on your phone's wires and bits and bobs. Sorry, I'm not a computer scientist. But when you speak into my microphone, when you dance in front of my cameras, and when you tap me, there's something it's like to be me. So consciousness is that thing which is within myself but not within the computer and that perhaps that's the best way to introduce well that that thing is consciousness well but are you really sure about that because there are people who are panpsychists so possibly even might if uh, there's even something that that it's like to be my computer for example mm. yeah i'm i'm quite happy with that and i, I i'm <laughs> agnostic on the point as to whether or not there is something it's like to be a computer, but for the starting off the discussion of consciousness, if we're asking what it is, I think that gives the everyday person a, a clear and a useful example. Mm -hmm. And why would you say consciousness matters so much or why should it matter from a philosophical perspective? Because I would guess that, I mean, in our daily lives, I would imagine people don't bother too much to think about what is consciousness, why they are conscious. I mean, it's just mm. something that comes to us naturally, intuitively. I mean, we're just conscious and that's it, I guess. But yeah. uh, And I'm not even asking what are possibly the functions of consciousness from a psychological or an evolutionary perspective, what roles mm. does it serve? But why should it matter so much for philosophers to think about consciousness? Good. So the essentially the question is, who cares, right? And I, I hear this a, a lot when we're talking about consciousness or, or philosophy of mind or metaphysics more generally. And obviously you can ask that question of anything. 
Like, who cares when I worked with a lot of students and believe me, even the things which are painfully obvious that they matter, you still get the question, who cares? So the answer to who cares is going to have to stop somewhere or why care, that's going to have to stop somewhere. And so you might get off on the first stop when someone says, oh, well, it matters for the sake of itself. So why should you care about it? Well, I care whether there was ever life on Mars, right? And I, I, you might be skeptical as to whether that's got any interesting implications. If there was life on Mars, there are already those insurgent creatures are already dead. We're never going to meet them. We can't learn from them. Who cares? But if it came out on, on, on the news tomorrow, the story about there was life on Mars, you might read through the article. You might think it's valuable just to learn about it for the sake of itself. So I'm often citing reasons which are existential or moral, and those ones seem to matter to people more and tap into their intuitions of what should matter more. But yeah, I, I don't have an issue with someone getting off on that first stop and saying, yeah, it just matters for the sake of itself. But it's one I've been thinking, trying to think about a little bit more recently, and not to much success, but yeah, simply because lots of people keep asking <laughs> is the question of self right it seems that consciousness matters because it's intimately tied up with the idea of of who it is to be me or what it is to have a self so have you got any like, like freaky friday 17 again with what's the guy uh, matthew perry have you got a favorite freaky friday type film ricardo uh no not really I have you, have you seen either of them have you seen freaky friday or 17 again uh no 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 i don't think so at least i can't recall so do you know the basic premise of a freaky friday film uh no please tell me about it <laughs> <laughs> i think i think the genre of freaky friday maybe starts with john locke or probably a philosopher who comes up with it beforehand so what happens in 17 again Maybe Matthew Perry says, like, oh, I wish I was 17. I can't remember the part of the movie. Anyway, they trade bodies. Right? They wake up one day and let's say you're in my brain, Ricardo, and I'm in yours. And it seems like Ricardo is here and Jack is over there. So what is it that makes me there and you here? This, everything else is the same. But our consciousness, our stream of consciousness has went into the being. So... For a lot of people, they think consciousness is intimately tied up with the idea of self. And so why does consciousness matter? Well, because know, cells matter for all kinds of reasons, including moral and existential ones. Does that answer your question? Is that enough there? Do you think it matters? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I mean, I think it matters. If we're going to talk about the self, then we would get into... Uh probably three-hour conversation about <laughs> what is the self and even and, and that that's also true for consciousness but even if it's only an illusion or if there's something more to it or if it's just even a narrative right that we create yeah. for ourselves and that might be functional in some way but still an illusion but since uh, that is not one of the topics that we want to get into today because of time limitations. Uh, what are some of the main philosophical approaches to consciousness out there? Yes, yeah, so in the book, we generally approach it in, broadly speaking, the three major approaches. Like most people, you could be a dualist, so... 
is it almost 90% of the world's population have some form of religious belief, which usually includes a view of having a soul. So you might think, I am my body and my soul, and my consciousness is synonymous with soul, or at least a feature of my soul is my stream of consciousness. You could be a physicalist. So a physicalist would say there are only physical properties and laws in the world. So all the things described by contemporary or future physics could be included in that. And then, as you suggested a moment ago, we've got a, a third view which attempts to bring in the virtues and avoid the vices of those two first views called panpsychism, which would say that consciousness is everywhere. Consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of, of the cosmos. So those are, those are three views that are explored in the book, the problems and, and, um, and things we like about them in each case. Mm -hmm. What do you think would happen if we were stripped of consciousness as mm. human beings? Because, of course, there's that famous Nagel paper about what, we, what it would be like to be a bat, right? And mm. we could discuss here if uh, other animals, other organisms that might also have some level of consciousness, I mean, we... There's also that discussion if there's, if we differ in terms of consciousness from other animals in kind or degree or both. I mean, um, what do you think would happen for us as humans as we live our normal lives if suddenly we didn't have consciousness? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is I think that as I mentioned a moment ago, in the idea of self, although you don't, we don't want to talk about it, but perhaps our lives, in any meaningful sense of the term, would disappear. There would be no experiences of the things that we love. There'd be no taste or anything that wouldn't be a, an inner world going on with experiences. We've just got physical mechanisms, for lack of a better phrase, um, bumping and going into each other and playing out in the world. So it, it'd be like a metaphysical wasteland type of a place where there's no there are no lies there's no meaning there's no ethical subjects there's nothing that really matters going on there there's there's no world to appreciate and, and experience so as soon as consciousness is gone yeah you you don't have you don't have those you asked what would happen to our lives our lives would sort of disappear yeah it's it sounds it's pretty miserable. Ricardo, we're onto a onto quite a, a sad and, and dark and and worrying place you've taken us to. So earlier you said that one of the things that you try to connect consciousness to to make the discussion or the problem more appealing to a general audience is mm. e ethics and the, and the ethical implications of having or not having consciousness. So what is the relationship there? I mean, do we really need to be conscious for us to be ethical at the same time or not? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's a it, well, it's not too much of a controversial view. I think it's the intuitive view that, that most people hold, but I, it's obviously not without its problems. But yeah, I think to be an ethical subject, to matter morally, is to have some kind of conscious experiences. That seems to me the most fundamental thing. 
like I said a moment ago, if in this world where there is no consciousness, there are no ethical subjects, there's no one to experience pain, suffering, happiness, um, pleasure, th those things just, just aren't available to us without consciousness. Now, I'm sort of agnostic as to whether you have to have some contents to that consciousness in terms of happiness, pleasure, pain and suffering. So in the book, as you know, David Chalmers uses that example of um, of the Vulcan trolley problem. So if you do the regular trolley problem first, you could say that you've got one human being on one track, normal, conchy, conscious human being, and you've got five zombies like me, but they don't have no inner worlds, no conscious experiences. Everything's in the dark for them. Well, choosing between letting the train roll over me or the five zombies, the obvious thing is to kill the five zombies. And then David Chalmers says, well, what if we said those five zombies weren't zombies, but Vulcans, i.e. conscious creatures, but they don't have any evaluative concepts like uh, pain, pleasure, happiness, suffering. They don't have any contents in that sense. They just have uh, neutral states. Like think of one plus one equals two. Think of a, a triangle. Like there's, there's no happiness or pleasure or pain or suffering associated with those thoughts. So it's like an extreme version of, of Spock from Star Trek. And he says it would be morally abhorrent to kill those five Vulcans just to save that one ordinary conchi, that ordinary human being who can experience those states. And I'm not sure of that. I'm I, thinking about it a little bit and I think it, I, I have no idea what I do or what I should do in, in that scenario. But what I do know is that consciousness is what gives the value on the fundamental level that, as I mentioned a moment ago, in that world without any conscious creatures, that a world with consciousness is more valuable than one without consciousness. Um, so, in a word then, Ricardo, I'd say... Yes, you need consciousness to be an ethical subject, but the question is what kind of um, contents of consciousness do you need to be an ethical subject? Is conscious alone sufficient? Maybe. Yes, because in terms of the content, I mean, we could be talking about consciousness in terms of emotions, right? Mm. Like, for example, pleasure, pain, and possibly some theory of mind going around there where we can also attribute the same mental states to other at least conspecifics i guess if we're talking about uh, beings from uh, the, the same species mm -hmm. uh, but i mean uh, perhaps do you think that f in order for us to be ethical subjects Mm. We also need to be able to articulate ethical principles, and so we also have to. We also need to have conscious access to ethical beliefs, moral principles, and things of that sort. So, is the question: Do you think I need to be be able to articulate or comprehend moral principles in order to be an ethical subject? Yes, or simply be oriented by emotions, for example. So I don't think you need to be able to articulate them or have those concepts. And 
I'm not sure what kind of role the emotions are going to play, but maybe I'll figure it out if I say it out loud, that clearly non-human animals are ethical subjects. That seems obviously true to me. Mm-hmm. They can't articulate their moral framework. They, have, they don't hold the concepts of good, bad, evil. Yeah. But they do seem capable, first of all, of being ethical subjects that should come into our consideration. So causing suffering or gratuitous suffering to a non-human animal seems obviously wrong. But you might also think that for a creature who's going about their way in the world to sacrifice, like say you're a, a like, I'm trying to think of a, an, an animal that would do something like this. Let's, I'll just pick a random one. Say, say, I was a, say I was a rabbit and had a little rabbit offspring. What's a baby rabbit called? Is there a name for a baby rabbit? I'm not sure. <laughs> say I was a say I was a big rabbit, and I'm googling baby rabbit name as I'm stalling here at the same time. A kitten. A baby rabbit's called a kitten. Wow. Ooh, also okay. a kitten. Okay. <laughs> cool. So say I'm a rabbit, and say I have some kittens, and there's a fox that comes to to kill my kittens. If I sacrifice myself to save my kittens, that's a good thing. Right. The rabbit has done a good. There must be something good in and of itself about sacrificing yourself for for other creatures, regardless of whether or not you're free or conscious or we're devising some moral system. There has to be something good about that act. Otherwise, when you freely choose to do that act, it wouldn't be a good act if there was no goodness at the end of it. So perhaps it's not good on the same level as a normal human being who would comprehend moral theory and has free will, but there is goodness still in um, the, the sacrificing of, of the rabbit for, for its kittens. So, no, I think you can be a, an ethical subject simply by having conscious experiences, i.e. Those, those matter and should come into our, our equations when we're making decisions. But also you can do good and bad acts regardless of whether or not you are conscious. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about the sort of elephant and the rider metaphor used by people like Jonathan Haidt, who study moral foundations. And yeah. uh, I mean, the idea that uh, many times what people articulate in terms of their uh, moral principles, for example, does not mm. correspond exactly and sometimes not not at all with how they behave or they give justifications after the fact that is they mm-hmm. come up with some sort of post hoc rationalization so yeah. i was just trying to understand what would exactly be i mean trying to nail down what aspects of consciousness or what would need to be conscious in us for us to be ethical subjects? Because we don't seem to have psychologically access to most of what happens in our minds, even in terms of motivations and what influences our behavior in one direction or the other. For example okay great so i think there's 
at least two things going on in, in that question, or at least in what you've explained there. The first thing is what it is to be an ethical subject, as in what types of things should come into our moral calculations. Mm-hmm. And as I said a moment ago, and let's just take the hedonistic uh, utilitarian's view that says what matters is pain, pleasure, happiness, suffering. Those are the things that should be reduced, i.e. pain and suffering, and we should uh, cultivate and increase the amount of happiness and pleasure in the world. So when you say, what is it for us to be ethical subjects? Well, as long as you're capable of having those experiences of happiness, pleasure, pain and suffering, then you should come into a calculation. But then there's the second question is, which you're asking there is, what is it to make a moral decision? Can they be made subconsciously for lack of a better term unconsciously do i make up the reasons why i've acted after the fact do yeah. those count as moral decisions etc if the rabbit saves its kittens is it making a moral decision there why does it seem like i am why why did you stop me from getting hit by that car well maybe i just acted impulsively maybe i didn't do a calculation i'd give you one afterwards i suppose the philosophy of decision making might um might get a little bit too complex and above my pay grade here i'm not i don't so i see that as a separate question to what it is to be an ethical subject your question is what is it to make decisions what is it what's sufficient for saying that i decided to do that and uh, i'm not sure i have an answer which is not going to be too off the cuff either ricardo mm-hmm Fair enough, fair enough. I was just trying to understand also, even from an evolutionary perspective, Mm. what would consciousness be good for, if anything? Because, I mean, at least I myself, possibly you as a philosopher who thought more about this than I did, would Mm. think otherwise, but I myself can very easily imagine just a being doing some uh, subconscious or unconscious computations and Mm. uh, having the same output in terms of behavior that we would call ethical or moral. I mean, when it comes to interacting with other beings, with, uh, ag- again, without having to have conscious access to virtually uh, anything, as long as the brain would process the information and give mm. a certain output. So. so, Susan Blackmore's got a nice way in here, and it's the same example used by David Chalmers in his book, The Conscious Mind. And they both ask us to imagine two creatures in our evolutionary past. Mm-hmm. One, conscious human beings just like you and me, and zombies, exactly the same as us, but they lack consciousness. And Susan Blackmore says, well, it doesn't like look like evolution would have any reason to favor the conchi over the zombie. They're behaviorally indistinguishable from us. So mm-hmm. what would be the benefit in being conscious? Yeah. Now, Dave Chalmers agrees and says, well, evolution's not going to do all the work for you. Maybe it collapses wave functions or something like that. The, water, the world is disordered in some fundamental way and consciousness brings order to it for a, for a quick um, explanation of the view. Then uh, I, I'm not, I don't know too much about 
that view, but I still want to find some kind of more obviously true evolutionary reason for it. People like Pat Churchland, as you know, will say it allows you to use language. Um, people think that it allows you to introspect. Perhaps the view I'm most sympathetic to would be the view that consciousness, and this is a view associated with Massimo Piglucci who uses it in the book, consciousness allows you to simulate possible scenarios. So I think about what I might do tomorrow. I can imagine all the things that I'm going to go about and do. And by able to simulate those scenarios, I can I can run the risk, do the calculations, and a creature that could do that in the sanctuary of their own mind would be more likely to survive than one who just went about the world and figured things out behavioristically, um, just through trial and error and never being able to to figure it out for themselves. But I'm not sure. I mean, there's that great example, isn't there, of, um, let's take a, I forget whose example it is, but say a woman was the, uh, as, as they're coming towards the end of the, the cycle and they're uh, about to uh, have a period and you have uh, an increase of progesterone as you're about to um, during your ovulation. And so that, that hormone tightens up your pores and um, gives rise to, to spots and and so you one might ask oh why do why do women typically wear more makeup when they're ovulating and you might think oh well to look to look better to increase the chances of reproduction from a evolutionary perspective but it's much more fundamental than that it's just that you're you're getting spots so it's hard you want to make sure you're not confusing correlation with cause in that example and the same with running simulations like yes i can run simulations but is that the reason why or rather, I can simulate possible outcomes, but is 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 that the reason why consciousness came about in the first place? Would it be that? Would it be that influential on my survival? Because I can imagine lots of non-human animals who don't have the power to simulate possible outcomes. I can imagine some more primitive kinds of consciousness or brain powers that could just they just experience the world and they can't sit there and contemplate all the things that can happen in the future. Yeah. yeah, it seems to me at least that those creatures are conscious. So perhaps that candidate's not as, as good as one than, than like a, a first thought. But yeah, I, I like most of the stuff in, in the book, Ricardo, I'm agnostic as to, as to whether or not I could have a function. But at least I think Susan Blackmore's and David Chalmers' example and the thought experiment does show is that it's not as clear and as straightforward as as we might think or as the general public might think and it also leads into something perhaps you want to talk about a little bit later on the panpsychist front mm -hmm. well evolution needs some kind of fundamental building blocks to play with so things can more complex things can develop so obviously we need some physical stuff for evolution to give me eyes and ears and thumbs like it didn't just come from nowhere i need some fundamental physical properties in the world and you might think the same for consciousness that it couldn't you need some kind of rudimentary consciousness and fundamental consciousness there to begin with in order to get these more interesting complex forms of consciousness that allow you to you know, run these simulations of things that can happen in the future mm -hmm.
Yeah, I mean, I'm just asking questions here. Some of them might even be silly. I don't know. <laughs> as I, as I said, as I said, I have mostly a scientific a scientific background, and I'm always trying to understand where things come from, an evolutionary mm. perspective mostly. And one of the things you mentioned there reminds me of the um, I hope I'm not mistaken on the term, but it's something like the imaginative worlds hypothesis put forth by mm. Edward O. Wilson that who died recently, one of the biggest evolutionary biologists of the last century, where he mentioned the hypothesis that consciousness would serve the function of us being able to imagine Pos uh, different possible scenarios without us having to directly experience them and put ourselves at uh, unnecessary risk and simulate what would happen in different kinds of situations, for example. So. But do you think uh, a rabbit could run those scenarios in the head, Ricardo, about uh, the... Like the likelihood of saving their, keeping their kittens safe? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you, assume not... you think that a rabbit is conscious, right? Do you think a rabbit is like, can experience pain, pleasure? and? Well, when it so comes to, to the be. consciousness of other animals, I guess I would tend to rely also from perhaps a vegan perspective uh, coming from people like Peter Singer and others, right? Mm. Uh, I think I would tend to rely more on the neuro, neural correlates of consciousness that is trying mm. to find the same uh, uh, brain structures and the same patterns of activation in yeah. other animals as we do in humans for, in this case, for consciousness. Can I push on it just out of interest, not because I'm yeah. trying to play oh, something no, no, trip course, you up on anything. I'm genuinely interested because I've only been thinking about this for for a, for a couple of days and not in any significant depth. Do you, if you think, do you, first of all, do you think that a rabbit or a or a kitten's conscious? Uh, I do believe that they are. I mean, I think that there's good evidence that at least they have a somewhat complex emotional life and that probably yeah. also manifests consciously. Yeah. Okay. I think most people would, right? If I, if I came over to yours and I, I kicked your rabbit, right? You'd be like, hell do you think you're doing that? Kick my rabbit. And if I said, oh, it's no different to me kicking your computer. You'd think I would, you think I was crazy. Not just because it's alive, but because it presumably can, can feel that kick. But do you think a rabbit can, simulate possible scenarios? Do you think a rabbit can think about? You know, maybe I can sneak into the farmer's yard. Maybe not the, hold the concept of farmer's and yard and lettuce, but do you think they can simulate, like, oh, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to run over there and I'm going to eat the lettuce. And I'm going to, so, I don't know what rabbits get up to. I, I really shouldn't have used rabbit as my example, but do you think it can run those those scenarios? Well, I'm not sure at all. Perhaps one example that is easier for me to understand would be the example of a lion trying to plan uh, catching a prey, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems more... Uh, I'm not sure about rabbits because I, I don't know much about them, but it's very easy for me to imagine that uh, when a lion is heading toward a prey, 
in mm. in disguise or something like that that uh, he or she is doing some sort of planning ahead the movements that he or she will do to yeah. catch the prey so i mean i i think that's plausible so yeah cool i'll think some more about it thank you i'm be i'll start thinking about animals that i know more about rather than just rabbits and kittens yeah, I mean, sometimes some of this can also get a little bit anthropocentric, right? Because we might mm. get ourselves interpreting the behaviors of other animals, uh, comparing them to our own behaviors and then attributing similar uh, mental states to them. Yeah. And that might not be the case. So, Yeah. I'm not sure about this one because you hear this a lot, don't you, that perspectives and approaches to understanding consciousness get accused of being anthropocentric. I putting the human condition first and forming our understanding of the world around it. Um, but basically, I think maybe a maybe a poor definition of it would be to say that the place humans is the most important things in the world. But certainly what people are being accused of is saying, well, this is what it is to be human. So that applies to other things too. That seems more anthropomorphism than it does anthropocentrism. Oh, so, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, no, no, sorry, I used the wrong term. I meant anthropomorphic instead of anthropocentric. Yeah, so, sorry, sorry. Right. Yeah, I think. Well, with the like we did with the rabbit, there, right? If uh, I doubt very few people are attributing all the mental states that human beings can have to all non-human animals as yeah. if it was a kind of Disney movie. So maybe that's a little bit of a, a straw man. But we, with with the right caution, we can I think we can say that they're they're conscious, that there's something it's like to be them. And we presume, we assume that they have those states when we train a horse or when we feed and look after our dog, take it for a walk and we see the types of reactions they have to stuff. Like when when a dog loses like certain of the dog in its pack like and it, and it seems to grieve or be upset or feel the loss and and look for them i don't think you're doing anything like metaphysically uh in bad faith or or you making a, a ridiculous inference to be like yeah the dog's that misses them like it's experiencing loss like that's a that's a really like i'm an animal too mm -hmm. like i i get that and i think that i think that's fine but yeah i, I don't think there's a the risk of philosophers of mind anthropomorphizing too much if in fact they often go the complete opposite way yeah so moving on to another topic on consciousness and mm. this is one perhaps that is very contentious all topics in consciousness are contentious i guess but uh, what about the hard problem of consciousness mm. as david chalmers named it what is it about and uh i mean what's the issue there yeah okay good so in a word two words the problem is explain consciousness and then to develop it a bit more the hard problem of consciousness asks how and why is there something it's like to be a creature or a being an agent so if it's just physical stuff out there in the world then why is there this qualitative aspect? Why doesn't all my brain process and just go on in the dark? 
So to, to draw that example from earlier, when we spoke about conscious and zombies, why aren't we just zombies? We're clearly not just zombies. So how is it that consciousness comes about from this seemingly physical world? Right. So it's the problem. Isn't it, isn't it connected in some way to the issue of, uh, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly the name now, but there's that thought experiment of someone learning everything there is to know about uh, the color red, yeah. then getting out of the room and experiencing red. And so there's... Um, the, uh, supposedly there's some sort of uh, epistemic value that is added to the exp uh, to the experiencing of the color red that you wouldn't get just mm. by knowing all of the neuroscience of co of the color red, for example, right? Yeah. So there are a few ways of motivating the problem, and uh, Frank Jackson's knowledge arguments are widely cited and a good one. And, and in the book, he gives an original essay explaining why he changed his mind on um, on the thought experiment, which is uh, which is hugely popular. But you, there's a couple of ways in. You might say, well, let's assume physicalism is true for a moment. Mm -hmm. So let's just say everything described by physics is all there is. Well, if you recreated every part of me physically would my consciousness necessarily follow? And if it does necessarily follow, then what is it about my physical processes that allow it to follow? So that's one way of putting it. But it doesn't seem obvious to, to a lot of philosophers that it would follow, that this seeming, that, that feeling of that non-physical aspect or that feeling of there's some, that qualitative rather than the quantitative aspect mm -hmm. of of, of me doesn't follow when you recreate me physically. And Jackson's one says, well, imagine this uh, neuroscientist, this brilliant neuroscientist, Mary, who spends her entire life in this black and white room learning every physical fact there is to know about seeing the color red. When she leaves the room, she sees a red rose for the first time. Would she be able to recognize that red rose? Would she know a fact about what it's like to experience the world from the physical facts alone. Does she learn something new? Does she learn a non-physical fact, the qualia or, or qualia of seeing red? And in the book, Jackson says, well, no, she wouldn't, um, but there's a reason why she wouldn't. So that he says that there are some experiences that we have that are transparent. So I look at a, uh, look at a square out there in the world, like a what, what square shape? My examples are, are dreadful today. Let's take let's take the book in front of me. Let's let's do some marketing. Let's take take a rectangle here, right? And I can see my experience is transparent because I can see that it's got four corners and, and four sides and, and that it's square shaped. So my experience reveals the nature of that thing. But there are some things which aren't transparent to us and that we need to learn a little bit more about them before we can know the nature of them. So I could learn everything there is to know about squares in the black and white room. And when I left, I could, and maybe I'd never seen a square and I learned every physical fact there are about squares. Show me a square, but yeah, it's a square. I can recognize that that fits the criteria of squareness that I learned about in the room. But the difficulty with experiencing color or color vision or colors more generally is that I, they're not transparent in the same way, says Jackson. So you have 
it's hard to see where there are, but they are on the color solid spectrum. So those like saturation and, and the hue, like the the intensity of the color, type of color it is, the how light or dark it is. I can't map it on that spectrum simply through my experience alone. So I'll need a little bit of, I'll need the, the tools of science to help me identify where it would fit on there. I need some instruments to determine what it's going to be like. So she won't recognize them because my experience of color doesn't tell me every physical factor is to know about it in that same way. So maybe I'm going a little bit too far afield there. The main point is this, that you could know every physical fact there is to know about the world, but you still wouldn't know what it's like to see red. And there's a, there's a non-physical fact there if the physical facts don't cover all of the facts. Mm -hmm. And what is illusionism? And if consciousness is an illusion, is it the same as not existing? And what would that mean even? Cool. So Keith Frankish gives a nice example in the book to explain illusionism and, and what the view entails. He gives a great thought experiment of walking down the street and you see this this, this woman with a, with a box, seemingly a street magician of some kind. She gets you to look into the box and there's nothing there and she says some mumbo jumbo and she opens the box and you see a, a little beetle inside. Now, she closes the box again, maybe she shows you there's no beetle there after all. So you've got three explanations you might give for the, the beetle being in the box. You might think that it's just a, like a, it is magic. You might think, I was going to say just magic, you might think it's just magic. You might think that it's actually magic and something Uh, that she's got some kind of special powers and the supernatural's involved or some non-physical forces is, is working in the world. And that might not be uh, your go-to. It seems like you're adding too much to, to your theory there. I don't think anyone would be reasonable in thinking that in, in the context of the thought experiment. You might think that uh, you can be explained uh, by physics alone, by ordinary, everyday scientific explanation. Or you might think that it was an illusion that the beetle was there. I, it seems to you like the beetle's there, but it's not really there. And you experience those sort of things when you've probably seen on like social media or in popular psychology books or psychology books more generally, you have these optical illusions, don't you? Where it's not really the case that the, the street is moving when you look at it on the picture or that the colors are there on, on the screen. It's an illusion of your experience. It's a physical trick of the brain. So, The illusionist says something similar about consciousness. You think the beetle's there, and you asked a moment ago, does that mean it's not real? No, you you still you see the beetle. You like the beetle is there, and the beetle exists, but the beetle's not what you think it is. The beetle's an illusion, a trick of your brain, and not actually something that's there in the world. So that's how uh, a small minority of philosophers of mind, like Daniel Dennett and Keith Frankish, would attempt to solve the hard problem of consciousness. They're trying to solve the meta problem of consciousness, which asks, why do we say and think all of the things that we do about consciousness? And if you can explain why we think we're conscious, if you can give an account of what gives rise to the illusion and why we think there's that the beetles there in the first place, then the hard problem will disappear. You can say, oh, well, here's how the illusion comes about. Here's the nature of, of illusionism. And, And hopefully the hard problem will, will dissolve, they say. Well, it, well, they say it will dissolve. Mm -hmm. But 
I mean, then why would we have that kind of illusion? Do they have anything to say about that? Presumably, off the top of my head, it's just going to be the same reasons that anybody else gives for how... Oh, so is the question here, why would we develop the capacity to have illusion of consciousness? Like, mm -hmm. why would... Yeah, I assume yeah. it's going to be this. It's going to be the same sort of thing as the panpsychists or the other kinds of facilities. They all they've all got to explain what its role is. They're just saying that. So think of in the context of those positions we described earlier. The dualist gives us two kinds of properties or substances. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't want that from our ontology or from our fundamental theory of the world. We want to assume or um, postulate the least number of substances types of substances and properties of some substances as possible and we should prefer the, the simpler view so the physicalist attempts to do that by saying well there's just physical stuff and consciousness is just uh is just an illusion in that way and so they're all gonna have to explain why would we develop the capacity they still think that consciousness seems as it does to you me the dualist the panpsychist they all say consciousness seems to us in that same way they just say well it's fundamental structure and, and properties and and nature is just something other than what we thought it was like we thought sunsets functioned in a certain way that the sun was actually setting but you know we still we still look at them we still see them we still think it's the same thing you can still ask yourself well why does the sun set but it's just not the same kind of setting as you as you thought in the first place mm-hmm and when it comes to panpsychism specifically, mm. how would you explain it? I mean, is it really... Because uh, when we get, for example, in your book into the chapter uh, about the interview with Patricia Churchland, I mean, mm. she makes some very <laughs> <laughs> funny... She has some very funny ways of putting her position on panpsychism and so yeah. she, she doesn't seem to take it very seriously but do, do you think what what would be the the way of still manning let's say panpsychism well maybe a nice way then is to use the example of pat church and of dan Tennant. so the first um parody or sarcastic interpretation of panpsychism is given by Pat Church in the book and she says well panpsychism the idea that consciousness is everywhere is no more reasonable than my view which is pan crapism and the, the, the whole the whole universe is crap and she says neither like neither of them do any work not, neither of them are equal, equally untestable etc etc and Dan Dennett uses a little less on the nose example and he says well, I've got this other view called pan-niftyism, that everything's nifty. What follows from pan-niftyism? Nothing. Same happens with panpsychism. I think the panpsychist would say there's not a problem with how niftiness and crap fits into a picture of the world. Like the former is a, uh, a psychological process grounded in physical processes in the brain, and the other one is... A, oh, that maybe maybe niftiness isn't that maybe this is more to niftiness. Let's not talk about the nature of niftiness. Like crap is just physical properties, right? It's just and we all know what it is. 
we're all <laughs> we're all familiar with it in some way and it doesn't need explaining there isn't a philosophy of that's no need to have one but what, what there is a problem with is how we fit the seemingly non-physical thing into our picture of reality i.e consciousness how do we put, get the mind in the context of the world so a good the panpsychist essentially says something like this physics is silent on the intrinsic nature of matter i.e what what is the essence of the world physics explains things in terms of what things do in terms of their dispositions in terms of cause and effect but what is the intrinsic nature of it what what is it on a fundamental level and they say look we've got this hole in that picture of reality and what the nature of the world is and we've got this property consciousness which we need to fit in somewhere and so they say the intrinsic nature of stuff is consciousness and so i mean you don't as again in the context of nifteism and, and crap that you don't need there's no problem with how they fit into our scientific picture of reality but there is a problem with how consciousness fits in with our theory of reality in terms of physical science mm -hmm. do you think or are there any non-naturalist approaches to consciousness that mm -hmm. in the sort of more scientifically minded or scientifically driven world we live nowadays would still make sense like for example something coming from theology mm. are you so are you asking are there any like supernatural versions of uh of Uh, supernatural ver versions of explaining where consciousness comes from uh, yeah th that are that would that you think would still be relevant to consider nowadays yeah okay so there's there's obviously a, a fair few well first of all the question of what naturalism is typically we mean there's just physical things in the world Mm -hmm. And this is physical laws properties. Again, it, yeah. it's, it's no supernatural things like ghosts and gods and angels. Yeah. So that that would be a, a ready to go definition of naturalism. But a lot of people would dispute that conception of naturalism and say, why should we assume that nature or the natural world is void of consciousness, is void of things that seemingly aren't uh, purely the things described by physics? So. Uh, Strawson calls them naturalists and says, oh, well, the naturalists assume that matter isn't conscious. And then they say the brain is this purely physical, natural thing. And then they wonder how consciousness comes into the picture. Well, I think it's begging the question, he says, to think that to begin with, consciousness isn't a part of the reasonable naturalist theory. And so, yeah, but let, let's take the first definition. Let's just say it's just physical stuff. And a supernaturalist view technically would be a form of substance dualism. And there are obviously plenty of philosophers in the philosophy of religion who embrace a form of Abrahamic faith, such as Christianity, who would say that we can't explain it in terms of our scientific models. These other views are problematic. Good old dualist or property dualism is the way to go about it. I think that on lots of people's views would be a, a type of supernaturalism. But more kooky more uh, progressive maybe views a more innovative views of supernaturalist metaphysics that might help us solve the problem of consciousness 
there's lots of work going on in alternative concepts of God and pantheistic views that would say um, you might be a cosmopsychist that says the whole universe is this one big conscious mind and then it breaks into individual perspectives. So this big conscious mind is perspectiveless and individual perspectives arise within it. You, I mean, that's, um, you might think that's, um, it can embrace a form of, of Hinduism. You think of the people who have these religious experiences and see the true nature of reality or Schopenhauer's view that it's just an illusion that there is a you and a me. There's no idea of self. It's just the will. And that's the world. And that will is this big conscious mind. And yeah, I think those are like they're, they're cooked up in the mess physicians laboratory. And I, I, you'll get some funny looks if you're at the pub and you say that you embrace one of these views, particularly in the West. But yeah, they offer you elegant and persuasive theories of of how consciousness can fit into our universe. But that saying there's no physical world for the idealist panpsychist or saying that God is the universe, the universe is God, and we exist in this big conscious mind might be too much for people like Pat Churchland who want to explain just this particular kind of brain function. So, yeah, promising views and views that we should take seriously if you take the hard problem seriously. Mm -hmm. And what about you personally? Because, of course, you've interviewed these people and edited the book, but do you have any personal take on what would be the most promising approach to consciousness from a philosophical perspective among mm. all of these ones that we've been talking about? Yeah, so in the book, I give perhaps the illusion to the reader that I would adopt a form of idealist panpsychism along with Miri Bahari in the final chapter, which we which she invites me to co-author with her. So I give the impression that we've been on this journey through, here's the nature of consciousness, here's the hard problem, here are some people who are trying to deflate the problem, say it's not that hard, here are the illusionists and the panpsychists, and we end on this idealist panpsychism that says there is no physical stuff, it's all just mind stuff, it's all just ideas and consciousness and individual minds within that. But I'm not married to the idea and I'm not, I wouldn't describe myself as a panpsychist when I'm going about my my day-to-day -day life. So I'd I'd say I'm agnostic on as to what the best approach is. I suppose there are lots of people who are much better suited to to answer that question than me. And I'm simply presenting the ideas and the obvious problems and and benefits of each of you and bringing them into tension with each other. And so, and I think that that's a a good position for the the public philosopher in general to be in that they, they haven't got their their agenda and that they they do embrace a level of impartiality but with that said there are obvious obvious views like in my if you push me i'd say in my in my personal view that physics alone physical science is never going to be able to explain consciousness mm -hmm. i think i think that's obviously true given the framework and methodology set out by, by Galileo, as Goff discusses in the book. And I, I suppose I would say I was more aligned with a version of panpsychism, and I'm certainly more interested in the idea of panpsychism. And I think it's a... It's someone We had a conference here in Liverpool a few weeks ago, and someone said, why is everyone here obsessed with panpsychism? And it's because it, it 
it grabs people's imaginations and thoughts. And it's interesting. It's big ideas. It's a lot of what we get into philosophy in the first place to, to discuss. So, yeah, I'd say I was more happy with I'm not a, I'm not quite as dogmatic as outright rejecting illusionism. I'm not a big fan of deflating the problem. And yeah, so a long way about it, I'd say I, if it pushed me, I'd be towards a view of panpsychism. Yeah. So just a couple of final questions. And since you're, you teach and communicate philosophy or communicate about philosophy, um, we're, we've been talking about consciousness here, but it could mm. apply to any other sort of question in philosophy. Do you think that the goal of philosophy is really to arrive at a concrete and definitive answer to a particular question? Or mm. is it mostly to think about it, to come up with new questions, to... Uh, think about what might be the most relevant ways of approaching the questions and so on. I mean, is it more about really knowing the answer or asking the questions? Good. A, a good combination of, of both of them, I suppose. I think the philosopher can say stuff like there are no square circles. There are no square circles in a possible world and, and that it breaches the law of non-contradiction. I think that's a like that's a definitive truth that philosophy can offer. Might not be the most exciting thing that philosophy can can teach y you and me, but uh, it's, that's that's an example of it giving us an, a truth. It can give us highly probable theories, the most plausible theories of of consciousness and of questions of morality and so on and so forth, and gets us over that fifty percent mark, and it becomes a reasonable thing to believe in. And philosophy can certainly give us those things and open those new and interesting questions. But I think as well, I embrace uh, an understanding of philosophy that Massimo Pellucci offers in the book as to science being a, a branch of philosophy, a hyper-specialized and in so far distinct and evolved version of philosophy that it would be weird almost to use the same name to describe it. It comes from the same, uh, it has the same genealogy. It's, it stems from philosophy and ultimately it informs our wider philosophical view of the nature of reality, our big picture theory of how it all hangs together. So if you think that it's reasonable to believe in things like, like gravity and that water's H2O and that in another world water couldn't be anything other than H2O, then it seems like philosophy does give you those, those answers that we typically take to be um, de definitive and in, in, in put colloquially. Mm -hmm. And since you mentioned science, that's precisely the last question I had for you. Uh, how do you look at the relationship between philosophy and science? And if we have a question that can be tackled both by philosophy and science, do do you think that we should prioritize? the answer science arrives at and provides us with? Or do you think that uh, philosophy, even if the, the question can be answered by science, philosophy mm. can still add uh, something more to it? Yeah, so I'll try and offer a, 
a, a different take than the one I've just given, which would be that ultimately it informs philosophy and they work hand in hand. And mm-hmm. I don't think there's any huge tension there. I think if you're trying to use the wrong branch of philosophy, i.e. science, to explain what another branch of philosophy would be more suited towards, like uh, first philosophy or um, uh, metaphysics more generally, then that would be misplaced. So I think there are obviously areas in which philosophy is in a better place to answer those and simply the methodology of science physical science isn't appropriate we we need to think that we need to be clear on what science involves and that's explaining the physical universe at a particular point in time and it does so in the context of what occurred at an earlier time and how the laws of nature operate in bringing about the perceived effects and that's physical so science isn't going to give you an explanation for um, like, like to take philosophy of religion, like pre Big Bang, timeless, spaceless, physicalless, reality. Like, how it's it has nothing to say on those questions because science is the it is its methodology is physical, and you might think the same sort of applies with consciousness here. If consciousness is not a physical thing or it's the illusion of, of physicality, then it doesn't seem like it's the if, if you thought it was non-physical then physical science isn't going to give you the answer. And it's that simple. If it was physical, if it wasn't obviously a physical thing, something publicly observable and something that can be explained in the language of science, then then yeah, it would be best suited for it. But it, it I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. I also asked you that question because I've heard already some uh, scientists mainly, but I could also name perhaps a couple of philosophers uh, the scientists, people like Richard Dawkins, for example, yeah. uh, saying that uh, for the most part, philosophy has become or is about to become obsolete due to the existence of science. So, Yeah, I mean, I think Richard's not saying anything which it, might, it sounds really controversial, doesn't it? It sounds like a, a, a big, like, controversial hot take that is, is almost divorced from the reality of, of the appropriate methodologies. But Richard's clearly quite happy with discussing uh, philosophical concepts. He, he clearly thinks that um, like selecting between certain scientific theories is something that scientists should be doing. You might call that philosophy. He just calls that science. I don't think we should get overly protective about the name calling here. Like he's not going to abandon the law of non-contradiction anytime soon. And so you shouldn't be too worried about his, his, his views on it. I'm not sure where Dawkins sits on the, the hard problem. We're having him on the show in a few weeks time on the pan to talk about, um, to, entitled, um, uh, why I'm an atheist essentially. And I know he's, he's read through philosophers on, on consciousness and i assume he probably favors a view like dennett's he's got a uh, huge respect for, for dennett's approach and it would certainly align with his more more general metaphysics of just embracing the physical and avoiding any kind of kooky supernatural things but yeah so in a word i think dawkins is probably happy with a lot more philosophy than, than we're giving credit for he just calls it science okay great so uh, apart from the book for which I will be leaving a link in the description box of the interview. 
would you like to promote your work? Tell people where they can find you, the Panpsychast Philosophy Podcast on the internet and other stuff like that. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to have a little platform at the end for, for just yeah. shameless self-promotion. So I'll, I'll, I'll take you up on it. Yeah. So the, the Panpsychast Philosophy Podcast, so there's, you just search Panpsychast, P-A-N-P-S-Y-C-S-T for those guides to philosophical questions and interviews with people that uh, if you're interested in Ricardo's and the dissenters work then then yeah we've had lots of similar guests perhaps talking about uh, uh, different things and bringing them into attention with with one of those so if you like those interviews check out the pan sidecast the book series is obviously a um it's it something worth checking out if you enjoyed our discussion today on the nature of consciousness and some of those perspectives then check out philosophers on consciousness but thirdly we're hosting a live show in liverpool on may 20th on the mystery of consciousness and uh, so there philip goff uh, anil seth laura gow and rowan williams the former archbishop so if you're interested in seeing these people actually debate each other directly rather than being in individual interviews but literally arguing with one of the from these radically different perspectives and positions then yeah come to the live show in liverpool on may 20th search for the mystery of consciousness liverpool and if you can't be there in person because you're you're nowhere near liverpool or the uk then there'll be video footage through unbelievable's youtube channel which is um the one hosted by justin briley mm -hmm. of premier radio so yeah just search for the mystery of consciousness liverpool Philosophers on Consciousness or Panpsychast. Thank okay. you, Ricardo. That was, uh, okay. I appreciate the opportunity and it's been really nice uh, talking to you. I wish I, I asked you more questions about your views on, on, on these things. I'm, I haven't you spoken to probably the same amount of people as I, I have on the topic, but perhaps a conversation for, for another day. Yeah, probably a conversation for when your next book in the series comes out. What about that? Great. That sounds good. Yeah, let's... Uh... Let's, 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 hopefully it won't take another two or three years for us to, to get around to having the conversation, but it's, it's been worth the wait. So thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. You're very welcome. Take care, Ricardo. Hi guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, hit the subscription button, all of those things you already know. And please consider supporting the show either on PayPal or Patreon. All of the links will be in the description box of the interview starting at $1 per month. So it would be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkwi, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Dugny, Alexander Dunbauer, 
Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Eira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dremiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Trader in NYC, My Producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vengnagdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardus France, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codreanu, and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.